Chapter 9 of Memories and Adventures This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Chapter 9 Pulling Up the Anchor Psychic Studies Experiments in Telepathy My First Seances A Curious Test General Drayson Opinion on Theosophy A. P. Sinnett W. T. Stead Journey to Berlin Cox's Treatment Brutality of Bergman Malcolm Morris Literary Society Political Work Arthur Balfour our departure. It was in these years after my marriage and before leaving South Sea that I planted the first seeds of those psychic studies which were destined to revolutionise my views and to absorb finally all the energies of my life. I had at that time the usual contempt which the young educated man feels towards the whole subject which has been covered by the clumsy name of spiritualism. I had read of mediums being convicted of fraud. I had heard of phenomena which were opposed to every known scientific law, and I had deplored the simplicity and credulity which could deceive good, earnest people into believing that such bogus happenings were signs of intelligence outside our own existence. Educated as I had been during my most plastic years in the school of medical materialism, and soaked in the negative views of all my great teachers, I had no room in my brain for theories which cut right across every fixed conclusion that I had formed. I was wrong, and my great teachers were wrong, but still I hold that they wrought well, and that their Victorian agnosticism was in the interests of the human race, for it shook the old ironclad unreasoning evangelical position which was so universal before their days. For all rebuilding a site must be cleared. There were two separate Victorian movements towards change, the one an attempt to improve the old building and make it good enough to carry on, as shown in the Oxford and High Church development, the other a knocking down of ruins, which could only end in some fresh erection springing up. As I have shown, my own position was that of a respectful materialist, who entirely admitted a great central intelligent cause, without being able to distinguish what that cause was, or why it should work in so mysterious and terrible a way in bringing its designs to fulfilment. From my point of view, the mind, and so far as I could see the soul, which was the total effect of all the hereditary or personal functionings of the mind, was an emanation from the brain, and entirely physical in its nature. I saw, as a medical man, how a spicule of bone or a tumour pressing on the brain would cause what seemed an alteration in the soul. I saw also how drugs or alcohol would turn on fleeting phases of virtue or vice. The physical argument seemed an overpowering one. It had never struck me that the current of events might really flow in the opposite direction, and that the higher faculties could only manifest themselves imperfectly through an imperfect instrument. The broken fiddle is silent, and yet the musician is the same as ever. The first thing which steadied me and made me reconsider my position 
was the question of telepathy, which was already being discussed by William Barrett and others, even before the appearance of Meyer's monumental work on human personality, the first book which devoted to these psychic subjects the deep study and sustained brain power which they demand. It may, in my opinion, take a permanent place in human literature, like the Novum Organum, or The Descent of Man, or any other great root book which has marked a date in human thought. Having read some of the evidence, I began to experiment in thought transference, and I found a fellow researcher in Mr. Ball, a well-known architect in the town. Again and again, sitting behind him, I have drawn diagrams, and he in turn has made approximately the same figure. I showed beyond any doubt whatever that I could convey my thoughts without words. But if I could verify such conclusions up to six feet, I could not well doubt them when they gave me the evidence that the same results could be obtained at a distance. With an appropriate subject and some undefined sympathy between the two individuals, it was independent of space. So the evidence seemed to show. I had always sworn by science and by the need of fearless following whatever truth might lie. It was clear now that my position had been too rigid. I had compared the thought excretion of the brain to the bile excretion of the liver. Clearly this was untenable. If thought could go a thousand miles and produce a perceptible effect, then it differed entirely, not only in degree, but in kind, from any purely physical material. That seemed certain, and it must involve some modification of my old views. About this time, 1886, the family of a general whom I attended professionally became interested in table-turning and asked me to come and check their results. They sat round a dining-room table which, after a time, their hands being upon it, began to sway and finally got sufficient motion to tap with one leg. They then asked questions and received answers, more or less wise and more or less to the point. They were got by the tedious process of reciting the alphabet and writing down the letter which the tap indicated. It seemed to me that we were collectively pushing the table and that our wills were concerned in bringing down the leg at the right moment. I was interested but very sceptical. Some of these messages were not vague platitudes but were definite and from dead friends of the family, which naturally impressed them greatly, though it had not the same effect upon me, since I did not know them. I have the old records before me as I write. Don't tell the girls when you see them, but they will talk about me. Kiss my baby for me. I watch her always, Francie. This was the style of message, mixed up with a good many platitudes. We held twenty or more of such meetings, but I never received anything evidential to my own address, and I was very critical as to the whole proceedings. Nonetheless, there was a problem to be solved, and I went on with its solution, reading the pros and the cons, and asking advice from those who had experience, especially from General Drayson, a very distinguished thinker and a pioneer of psychic knowledge, who lived at that time at Southsea. I had known Drayson first as an astronomer, for he had worked out a revolutionary idea by which there is a fatal mistake in our present idea as to the circle which is described in the heavens by the prolonged axis of the earth. It is really a wider circle 
round a different centre, and this correction enables us to explain several things, now inexplicable, and to make astronomy a more exact science, with certain very important reactions upon geology, and the recurrent glacial epochs, the exact date of which could be fixed. His views impressed me much at the time, and several books upholding them have appeared since his death, notably Draysonians by Admiral de Horsey. If he makes good, as I think he will, Drayson will make a great permanent name. His opinion, therefore, was not negligible upon any subject, and when he told me his views and experiences on spiritualism, I could not fail to be impressed, though my own philosophy was far too solid to be easily destroyed. I was too poor to employ professional mediums, and to work on such subjects without a medium is as if one worked at astronomy without a telescope. Once only an old man with some reputed psychic power came for a small fee, and gave us a demonstration. He went into a loud-breathing trance to the alarm of his audience, and then gave each of us a test. Mine was certainly a very remarkable one, for it was, Do not read Lee Hunt's book. I was hesitating at the time whether I should read his comic dramatists of the Restoration or not, for on the one hand it is literature, and on the other the treatment repelled me. This then was a very final and excellent test so far as telepathy went, but I would not fully grant that it was more. I was so impressed, however, that I wrote an account of it to light the psychic weekly paper, and so in the year 1887 I actually put myself on public record as a student of these matters. That was 37 years ago, as I write, so I am a very senior student now. From that time onwards I read and thought a great deal, though it was not until the later phase of my life that I realised whither all this was tending. This question I will treat in a final section by itself, so that those to whom it is of less interest can avoid it. I was deeply interested and attracted for a year or two by theosophy, because while spiritualism seemed at that time to be chaos, so far as philosophy went, theosophy presented a very well thought out and reasonable scheme, parts of which, notably reincarnation and karma, seemed to offer an explanation for some of the anomalies of life. I read Sinnott's Occult World, and afterwards, with even greater admiration, I read his fine exposition of theosophy in Esoteric Buddhism, a most notable book. I also met him, for he was an old friend of General Drayson's, and I was impressed by his conversation. Shortly afterwards, however, there appeared Dr. Hodgson's report upon his investigation into Madame Vlavatsky's proceedings at Adyar, which shook my confidence very much. It is true that Mrs. Besant has since then published a powerful defence, which tends to show that Hodgson may have been deceived, but the subsequent book, A Priestess of Isis, which contains many of her own letters, leaves an unpleasant impression, and Sinnott's posthumous work seems to show that he also had lost confidence. On the other hand, Colonel Olcott shows that the woman undoubtedly had real psychic powers, whatever their source. As to spiritualism, it seems to have only interested her in its lower, phenomenal aspect. Her books show extraordinary erudition and capacity for hard work, even if they represent the transfer of other people's conclusions 
as they frequently do. It would be unjust, however, to condemn the old wisdom simply because it was introduced by this extraordinary and volcanic person. We have also had, in our branch of the occult, many dishonest mediums, but we have hastened to unveil them where we could do so, and theosophy will be in a stronger position when it shakes off Madame Blavatsky altogether. In any case, it could never have met my needs, for I ask for severe proof, and if I have to go back to unquestioning faith, I should find myself in the fold from which I wandered. My life had been a pleasant one with my steadily increasing literary success, my practice, which was enough to keep me pleasantly occupied, and my sport, which I treat in a later chapter. Certainly, however, there came a development which shook me out of my rut and caused an absolute change in my life and plans. One daughter, Mary, had been born to us. Our household was a happy one, and as I have never had personal ambitions, since the simple things of life have always been the most pleasant to me, it is possible that I should have remained in South Sea permanently, but for this new episode in my life. It arose when, in 1890, Koch announced that he had discovered a sure cure for consumption, and that he would demonstrate it upon a certain date in Berlin. A great urge came upon me suddenly that I should go to Berlin and see him do so. I could give no clear reason for this, but it was an irresistible impulse, and I at once determined to go. Had I been a well-known doctor or a specialist in consumption, it would have been more intelligible, but I had, as a matter of fact, no great interest in the more recent developments of my own profession, and a very strong belief that much of the so-called progress was illusory. However, at a few hours' notice, I packed up a bag and started off alone upon this curious adventure. I had had an interchange of letters with Mr. W. T. Stead over some matter, and I called upon him at the Review of Reviews office as I passed through London to ask if he could give me an introduction to Koch or to Dr. Bergman, who was to give the demonstration. Mr. Stead was very amiable to this big unknown provincial doctor, and he gave me a letter for the British ambassador, Sir Edward Mallet, if I remember right, and for Mr. Lowe, the Times correspondent. He also asked me to do a character sketch of Koch for him, adding that he would have Count Matei as a feature of his magazine this month, and Koch the next. I said, then you will have the greatest man of science and the greatest quack in Europe following each other. Stead glared at me angrily, for it seemed that the Matei treatment with its blue electricity and the rest of it was at that moment his particular fad. However, we parted amiably, and all through his life we kept in distant touch, though we came into sharp collision at the time of the Boer War. He was a brave and honest man, and if he was impulsive at times, it was only the sudden outflame of that fire which made him the great force for good that he was. In psychic knowledge he was a generation before his time, though his mood of expressing it may sometimes have been injudicious. I went on to Berlin that night and found myself in the Continental Express with a very handsome and courteous London physician, bound upon the same errand as myself. We passed most of the night talking, and I learned that his name was Malcolm Morris, and that he had also been a provincial doctor, but that he had come to London and made a considerable hit as a skin specialist in Harley Street. 
It was the beginning of a friendship which endured. Having arrived at Berlin, the great thing was to be present at Bergman's demonstration, which was to be next day at twelve. I went to our ambassador, was kept long waiting, had a chilly reception, and was dismissed without help or consolation. Then I tried the Times correspondent, but he could not help me either. He and his amiable wife showed me every courtesy and invited me to dinner that night. Tickets were simply not to be had, and neither money nor interest could procure them. I conceived the wild idea of getting one from Koch himself, and made my way to his house. While there I had the curious experience of seeing his mail arrive, a large sack full of letters, which was emptied out on the floor of the hall, and exhibited every sort of stamp in Europe. It was a sign of all the sad broken lives and wearied hearts, which were turning in hope to Berlin. Koch remained a veiled prophet, however, and would see neither me nor anyone else. I was fairly at my wit's ends, and could not imagine how I could attain my end. Next day I went down to the great building where the address was to be given, and managed by bribing the porter to get into the outer hall. The huge audience was assembling in a room beyond. I tried further bribing that I might be slipped in, but the official became abusive. People streamed past me, but I was always the waiter at the gate. Finally, everyone had gone in, and then a group of men came bustling across, Bergman, bearded and formidable, in the van, with a tale of house-surgeons and satellites behind him. I threw myself across his path. "'I have come a thousand miles,' said I. "'May I not come in?' He halted and glared at me through his spectacles. "'Perhaps you would like to take my place,' he roared, working himself up into that strange folly of excitement which seems so strange in the heavy German nature. "'That is the only place left. "'Yes, yes, take my place by all means. "'My classes are filled with Englishmen already.' He fairly spat out the word Englishman, and I learned afterwards that some recent quarrel with Morel Mackenzie over the illness of the Emperor Frederick had greatly incensed him. I am glad to say that I kept my temper and my polite manner, which is always the best shield when one is met by brutal rudeness. Not at all, I said. I would not intrude if there was really no room. He glared at me again, all beard and spectacles, and rushed on with his court all grinning at the snub which the presumptuous Englishman had received. One of them lingered, however, a kindly American. That was bad behaviour, said he. See here, if you meet me at four this afternoon, I will show you my full notes of the lecture, and I know the cases he is about to show, so we can see them together tomorrow. Then he followed on. So it came about that I attained my end after all, but in a roundabout way. I studied the lecture and the cases, and I had the temerity to disagree with every one, and to come to the conclusion that the whole thing was experimental and premature. A wave of madness had seized the world, and from all parts, notably from England, poor afflicted people were rushing to Berlin for a cure, some of them in such advanced stages of disease that they died in the train. I felt so sure of my ground and so strongly about it that I wrote a letter of warning to the Daily Telegraph, and I rather think that this letter was the very first which appeared upon the side of doubt and caution. I need not say that the event proved the truth of my forecast. 
Two days later I was back in South Sea, but I came back a changed man. I had spread my wings and had felt something of the powers within me. Especially I had been influenced by a long talk with Malcolm Morris, in which he assured me that I was wasting my life in the provinces and had too small a field for my activities. He insisted that I should leave general practice and go to London. I answered that I was by no means sure of my literary success as yet, and that I could not so easily abandon the medical career which had cost my mother such sacrifices and myself so many years of study. He asked me if there was any special branch of the profession on which I could concentrate so as to get away from general practice. I said that of late years I had been interested in eye work and had amused myself by correcting refractions and ordering glasses in the Portsmouth Eye Hospital under Mr. Vernon Ford. Well, said Morris, why not specialise upon the eye? Go to Vienna, put in six months' work, come back and start in London. Thus you will have a nice clean life with plenty of leisure for your literature. I came home with this great suggestion buzzing in my head, and as my wife was quite willing and Mary, my little girl, was old enough now to be left with her grandmother, there seemed to be no obstacle in the way. There were no difficulties about disposing of the practice, for it was so small and so purely personal that it could not be sold to another and simply had to dissolve. The Portsmouth Literary and Scientific Society gave me a Godspeed banquet. I have many pleasant and some comic reminiscences of this society, of which I had been secretary for several years. We kept the sacred flame burning in the old city with our weekly papers and discussions during the long winters. It was there I learned to face an audience which proved to be of the first importance for my life's work. I was naturally of a very nervous, backward, self-distrustful disposition in such things, and I have been told that the signal that I was about to join in the discussion was that the whole long bench on which I sat, with everyone on it, used to shake with my emotion. But once up I learned to speak out, to conceal my trepidations, and to choose my phrases. I gave three papers, one on the Arctic Seas, one on Carlisle, and one on Gibbon. The former gave me a quite unmerited reputation as a sportsman, for I borrowed from a local taxidermist every bird and beast that he possessed which could conceivably find its way into the Arctic Circle. These I piled upon the lecture table, and the audience, concluding that I had shot them all, looked upon me with great respect. Next morning they were back with the taxidermist once more. We had some weird people and incidents at these debates. I remember one very learned discussion on fossils and the age of the strata, which was ended by a cadaverous major-general of the evangelical persuasion, who rose and said in a hollow voice that all this speculation was vain, and indeed incomprehensible, since we knew on an authority which could not possibly be questioned, that the world was made exactly 5,890 years ago. This put the lid on the debate, and we all crept home to bed. My political work also caused me to learn to speak. I was what was called a liberal unionist. That is, a man whose general position was liberal, but who could not see his way to support Gladstone's Irish policy. Perhaps we were wrong. However, that was my view at the time, I had a dreadful first experience of platform speaking on a large scale, 
for at a huge meeting at the amphitheatre the candidate, Sir William Crossman, was delayed, and to prevent a fiasco I was pushed on at a moment's notice to face an audience of three thousand people. It was one of the tight corners of my life. I hardly knew myself what I said, but the Irish part of me came to my aid and supplied me with a torrent of more or less incoherent words and similes which roused the audience greatly, though it read to me afterwards more like a comic stump speech than a serious political effort. But it was what they wanted, and they were mostly on their feet before I finished. I was amazed when I read it next day, and especially the last crowning sentence, which was, England and Ireland are wedded together with the sapphire wedding ring of the sea, and what God has placed together let no man pluck asunder. It was not very good logic, but whether it was eloquence or rodomontade, I could not even now determine. I was acting secretary when Mr. Balfour came down to address a great meeting, and, as such, when the hall was full, I waited on the curb outside to receive him. Presently his carriage drove up, and out he stepped, tall, thin, and aristocratic. There were two notorious artisans of the other side waiting for him, and I warned them not to make trouble. However, the moment Balfour appeared, one of them opened a huge mouth, with the intention of emitting a howl of execration. But it never got out, for I clapped my hand pretty forcibly over the orifice, while I held him by the neck with the other hand. His companion hit me on the head with a stick, and was promptly knocked down by one of my companions. Meanwhile Balfour got safely in, and we two secretaries followed, rather dishevelled after our adventure. I met Lord Balfour several times in afterlife, but I never told him how I once had my hat smashed in his defence. What with the literary society and the politicians, I left a gap behind me in Portsmouth, and so did my wife, who was universally popular for her amiable and generous character. It was a wrench for us to leave so many good friends. However, toward the end of 1890 the die was cast, and we closed the door of Bushvilla behind us for the last time. I had days of privation there, and days of growing success during the eight long years that I had spent in Portsmouth. Now it was with a sense of wonderful freedom and exhilarating adventure that we set forth upon the next phase of our lives. End of chapter 9